Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 23. Today we will be reading Book 7, Chapters 1-4 through in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So this is it's day 23, but it's day one of book seven. So in the first chapters of book seven, St. Augustine will give consideration to the nature of God in sort of Neoplatonic terms. So he's been using Neoplatonism or the sort of philosophy of Plato and his philosophical descendants to talk about God in different ways. But here we get it a little more explicitly and a little more directly. St. Augustine questions the nature of God, particularly what he is, what he isn't, because at this point he has rejected the Manichaean notion or idea of dualism, which had been the the lens or the school that he used to help understand the created world and, and God. But now without that tool, he's, he's looking to the Neoplatonic philosophers. So this leads, this rejection of dualism leads him to further questions of creation and evil, and he begins to ask these in, in these chapters in this book. So we're getting a little more technical in some ways, but also kind of broadening our philosophical and theological understanding of God. So it's an exciting time in St. Augustine's life and our lives. So before we turn to the readings and get into these thoughts, let's, uh, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work, too, may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 1. My evil and abominable youth now lay dead, and I was passing on to early manhood. With the passing of years, I grew more defiled by vain things, all the while only imagining that reality was bounded by the limits of my physical sight. I did not think of you, O God, as though you had a bodily human figure. From the time I heard even the mere beginnings of wisdom, I avoided this, rejoicing, however, to have found that the same was held by the faith of our spiritual mother, your Catholic Church. However, I had no idea what else to think about you, and I, a man, indeed such a man, sought to conceive of you as the sovereign, only true God. And in my inmost soul, I believed that you were incorruptible, free from all injury, and not subject to any change. For although I did not know where or how I got such knowledge, I plainly and surely saw that corruptible realities must be inferior to that which is not subject to corruption, that what is unable to be injured must be unhesitatingly preferred to what can be injured, and that the unchangeable preferred to changing things.' 
My heart passionately cried out against all the phantoms of my imagination, and with one blow I sought to clear my mind, driving from it the unclean swarm buzzing about it. However, only a moment after being driven away, they were back in the blink of an eye, thickly gathered about my face, clouding its vision. Thus, although I did not conceive of you as though you had a human body, nonetheless I was forced to conceive of you the incorruptible, unendurable, unchangeable one whom I prefer to corruptible, endurable, and changing realities, as though you were in space, either spread throughout the world or diffused infinitely outside of it. For whatever I might have conceived as being deprived of such spatial dimensions seemed to be nothing, indeed altogether nothing, not even an empty void remaining after a body had been removed from it, leaving neither earth, water, air, or the heavens therein, but at least leaving a kind of spacious nothingness. With this way down heart, and not even clear about what I myself was, I thought that whatever lacked spatial extension, diffusion, density, or fullness, or could not at least be received into such dimension, was in fact altogether nothing. For my heart ranged over the kinds of forms that my eyes saw, and I did not yet see that the mind itself, by which I fashioned these very images, was not something bodily like this. Nonetheless, it could not have formed them if it were not itself something truly great." Therefore, too, I strove to conceive of you, O life of my life, as though you were vast, spread out through infinite spaces, penetrating the whole mass of the universe on every side and going beyond it in every direction through measured extents of boundless space. Thus the earth would have you and heaven and all things, and yet they would be bounded by you and you bounded nowhere. For just as bodily air does not hinder the sunlight from passing through it and penetrating it, not by bursting or cutting, but by wholly filling it, so too I thought that all bodies, not only of heaven, air, and sea, but also of the earth too, were permeable to your presence, so that in all its parts, both the greatest and the smallest, it should admit your presence by a secret inspiration within it, but also outside it, all things that you created. Such is what I thought, just as I did about the rest of reality, though it was false. Were it true, a larger portion of earth would contain a larger portion of you, while smaller spaces would contain less. And all things of each sort would be full of you, so that the body of an elephant would contain more of you than would that of a sparrow, all depending on the size of the reality in question. Thus you would make various parts of yourself present to various parts of the world, doing so in fragments, giving large ones to large beings and small fragments to small beings. But this is not how you are. However, as yet, you had not enlightened my darkness. Chapter 2 this was enough for me, Lord, to oppose those deceived deceivers, those prattling fools, for your word did not sound from their lips. In fact, even while in Carthage, it was enough to hear the words of Nebridius, who astounded us when he asked, What could that supposed nation of darkness, spoken of by the Manichaeans as though it were a mass set in opposition to you, actually do to you if you refuse to fight it? For if one were to answer that it would have done injury to you, then you would have been subject to injury and corruption. But if it were said that it could do no harm to you, then there was no reason for you to fight against it. In fact, such fighting would have involved some part of you, or some offspring of your very substance, becoming intermingled with those opposed powers and natures that were not created by you, leading you to be corrupted and changed for the worse, so that your happiness would have been turned to misery, and leading you to need assistance, so that you might be extricated and purified of this evil. This offspring of your substance would be the soul, enslaved, defiled, and corrupted, to be relieved by your word, which is free, pure, and whole. 
But that would have been corruptible too, for it was of one and the same substance. Thus, if they were to tell you that whatever you are, that is your substance by which you are, is incorruptible, then all these things would be false and deplorable. However, if they said you were corruptible, the very statement itself would be false and revolting. Nebridius's argument already sufficed against those who wholly deserved to be vomited out of the nauseous stomach, for they had no means of escaping horrible blasphemy in their hearts and words, so long as this is what they thought about you. Chapter 3 But I too as yet, though firmly persuaded that you are the Lord and true God, undefilable, inalterable, and in no way subject to change, you who made not only our souls, but also our bodies, and not only our souls and bodies, but indeed all beings and things, I did not understand clearly and without difficulty the cause of evil. Nonetheless, whatever it was, I did perceive that it should not be conceived of in any way that would lead me to believe that the unchangeable God is changeable, lest I should become that very evil that I was seeking to understand. Thus, without anxiety, I sought it out, sure of the untruth of the positions held by those from whom I shrank away with my whole heart, since I saw that when they inquired into the origin of evil, they themselves became filled with evil, for they preferred to think that your substance suffered evil rather than to think that their own committed it. I strove to perceive what I now heard, namely that free will was the cause of our own evil doing and that your just judgment was the cause of our suffering evil. However, I was not able to discern the matter clearly. Thus, striving to draw my soul's vision out of that deep pit, I was plunged back into it, and with all my strivings, I was continually plunged back in. Yet, this raised me slightly into your light. I was as well aware of the fact that I have a will as I was that I lived. When I willed or did not will to do anything, I was quite sure that nobody other than I did or did not do it. Indeed, I nearly became aware that this is the cause of my sin, but I saw that what I did against my will was something that I suffered, not did. And I judged this to be my punishment, not my fault. However, holding that you are just, I quickly confessed that I was not thereby unjustly punished. But again I said, who made me? Was it not my God, who is not only good, but goodness itself? Was it the source of my ability to will evil and not will the good so that I am justly punished? Who placed this in me and grafted onto me this bitter stem? For I was fashioned by my most sweet God. If the devil were its author, where does he come from? And if he too, by his perverse will, became a devil after having been an angel, what was the source of his evil will by which he became a devil? For the whole nature of the angels was made by the most good creator. Filled with such thoughts, I sank down again and was choked, though I was not brought down to that hell of error where no man confesses to you, so as to think instead that you suffer evil and that man does not do it. Chapter 4 In this way, I was like someone trying to find the full implications of my belief that the incorruptible must be better than the corruptible, which already had led me to confess that you must be incorruptible. For there never has been nor will be a soul that will be able to conceive anything that would be better than you, who are the sovereign and best good. However, since most truly and certainly the incorruptible is preferable to the corruptible, as I did now prefer it, then if you were not incorruptible, I would have thought up something better than my God. Thus, by seeing that the incorruptible is preferable to the corruptible, I thereby grasped that I ought there to seek for you and there observe where evil itself was, that is, to find the source of corruption which can in no way harm your substance. For corruption in no way harms our God, by no will, by no necessity, by no surprising chance. For he is God, and what he wills is good, and he himself is that good, and to be corrupted is not good. 
nor are you constrained against your will to do anything, since your will is not greater than your power. But it would need to be greater were you greater than yourself, for the will and power of God is God himself. And what could be surprising for you who knows all things? Nor is there anything in the nature of things that you do not know. And why should we keep asking, could that substance that is God perhaps be corruptible? If it were, it would not be God. All right. Here we are, book seven, Augustine, 30 years old. Um, Father Gregory and I are in our 30s, so we're getting more to a relatable age with St. Augustine and <laughs> these sort of things, you know? I don't know, I guess that in the in the fourth century, in the, what would he be in the fourth century or the early fifth century at this point? It's pretty middle-aged, right? Would you say? Yeah. I mean, life expectancy is doing well, so. Yeah. I was recently having a conversation about life expectancy. Apparently, it's largely uh, skewed by infant mortality and death in childbirth. So who knows what like the average age of death for a grown hmm. male would have been. But uh, regardless, this man is 30 years old. That is beyond any shadow of a doubt. We should have added a, f a footnote in the text. We're sorry, <laughs> listeners and readers, for not having done that. Anywho, the age and death rate, no. Yeah. Yeah, uh, mortality rates. Yeah, average life expectancy. That's what it is. it's not oh, the yeah. subject of today's chapters. Just <laughs> worth pointing out where we are in St. Augustine's life. He's 30 years old. And at this point, as as was mentioned, he's rejected this Manichaean idea of dualism as a way by which to understand the world. So, Father Gregory, I don't know if you want to say a little bit about the sort of conundrum or the place where, where Augustine finds himself and why he makes this turn to Neoplatonism. And, you know, I, I just find him to be without like a, a philosophical father right now. He needs somebody to guide him, and he, he's kind of he's leaving one behind, taking up another. So, if you want to yeah. say something, say something. Yeah. Typically, we describe the ongoing conversion of Saint Augustine as one from like pagan hedonism. Although we never hear him as a worshipful pagan frequenting temples and things like that. You know, he's raised by a Christian mother, and that has an effect on his life, even from an early age, yet nevertheless, a hedonist. And then a Manichae, still a hedonist, but that seems to be the next step that he takes. Here he takes the third step, a Neoplatonic step. In some editions of this book, this chapter is entitled like a Neoplatonic quest or something along those lines. And then in the next book, we'll hear of his reception into the, the Catholic Church or his reception is welcoming of the Catholic faith. So he kind of goes stepwise, although there might be some overlap between those steps as he wends his way towards the fullness of faith and towards, you know, like a genuine and full conversion. But in this particular case, it's, and we talked about this a little bit in the bonus introductory episode for this book, it's a kind of purification of thought. So he realized that many of his thoughts about the spiritual world, about the material world, but regardless about the world are crass, unrefined, somewhat mythological and off base. Now, the Manichees, they have the gumption to assert these things because they're not verifiable. So it's like, well, you can't really say anything about the invisible world and get checked on it. So may as well say whatever you darn well please. And that's exactly what they do. But he realizes, you know, sifting through these thoughts, that even their most skilled orators, as we heard in book five, uh, their, their most competent bishops are not able to defend the teachings on anything like reasonable grounds. So that gives him a taste for, an appetite for more reasonable grounds, thus leading him to the threshold of the Neoplatonic, you know, studium, as it were, or, you know, university to speak in anachronistic terms. So I think we find him in this particular point in his life, and it's going to be fruitful insofar as it 
yeah, disabuses him of certain errors and also, yeah, heals him of kind of strange thought patterns, which might otherwise pose obstacles to his conversion. Yeah, I guess. So what is, in your estimation, Father Gregory, what is, well, maybe I'll say this first. One of the one of the things that St. Augustine is still, still struggling with here philosophically or theologically is the question of of like God's identity of substance of, you know, because God isn't physical, but how does a physical thing not exist? You know, these, these kind of, what is, I guess my question is what does, and as St. Augustine's exploring this, what does this, the Neoplatonics offer by way of answer here? Can we talk about substance briefly, kind of give everybody a, a sh- sort of common ground there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there might be a couple of people listening to the podcast who know a lot about Neoplatonism. So what I'm about to say is a kind of quick summary, and as a result of which it's going to risk some oversimplification, but so I ask your pardon. Uh, one of the big Neoplatonic thinkers is Plotinus, and the main work of his that we have is called the Enneads, and it's compiled by his student Porphyry on kind of topical grounds. And one of the things that it offers the attentive reader is a way by which to describe how you go from one simple immaterial principle of being to complex material realities. And it kind of describes it as a, as an emanation, like the rays that depart from the sun, they take on a different form on the surface of the earth, producing heat. Whereas the ancients thought that the sun itself was not hot. We know it to be very hot indeed. So buyer beware, should you try it? Never mind. Keep going, Gregory. Regardless, uh, it, it tries to explain how all these variegated and differentiated realities come about from a single principle, which is to say God, and not as a result of God's introducing evil into the mix, but as a result of a kind of metaphysical fall. That'll all sound a little bit philosophically jargony, and I don't know that there's any way of avoiding that. But again, St. Augustine is on the lookout, he's on the move, he's searching for a way by which to explain his experience of reality that accounts for it, because he's not satisfied with like this little tidbit or this piece of trivia. He wants to have a theory of everything. And until he has a theory of everything, a kind of harmonic or symphonic theory of everything, it's going to be too cacophonous for him to bear the noise. So he wants everything to sound sweet in his ears, and he's going to be continually searching until such time as he happens upon the right note. Yeah, he's, as we know, he's this this lover of wisdom and this desire of wisdom and truth. So he's moving, he's moving more closely, but as he's moving more closely to truth itself, it seems that, I don't know, I'm thinking it in terms of like a snowplow. I don't know why, mm. but bear with me. And the sense that, you know, if you have a small shovel, you're only going to be pushing, or maybe a snowblower is better, like taking things in, right? That you're only going to be taking so much, but it's it's sort of widening. He's kind of like sucking more information more knowledge and uh, of god of, of knowing god as he's getting closer to his conversion so might be a, an analogy or an image that, that limps severely but hey, <laughs> you're gonna have to you're just gonna have to take it you can come up with That's your it. own um yeah so one of the things that that saint augustine also brings up here in these books or sorry in these chapters goodness um is the question of free will and and the root or the cause of of evil so up until now at least through his t- nine years, give or take, as a maniche, the the sort of cause of evil had been a, a creator, a deity of evil, um, one who created evil. But seeing as that doesn't 
hold water and doesn't pan out, the question still remains as to who causes evil. And if we think of the problem, and, and if we think of the problem with respect to God, who is good, then how is it that a good God creates evil? Well, St. Augustine comes to the conclusion here, the realization here, that in fact, it's not God, but it is we, men and women, who are the cause of evil. And we do we, we sin, we cause evil in our own freedom and our own willing and our own choice. This is a big, I guess, realization. Um, I think in any conversion, if it's not already realized in the beginning, one, because we can't beg for a savior, or beg for the grace and mercy and love of a savior, or if we don't think that we need a savior, you know? But the other is that, you know, as Augustine, or another way to think about it, there have been times, as Augustine has himself has explained, that he has had sort of other excuses for what has caused evil where he wasn't culpable, you know, and understanding through the Manichaean sense, through the sort of pagan sense. Um, but now he comes face to face with the fact, with the reality that, yikes, it is he himself who sins and we ourselves who who cause evil. So um, that's a big, what, mental shift, understanding shift, game changer. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have further thoughts, Father Gregory, but this is where we are. Yeah. It's interesting, it's actually uh, reflecting on the fact that this notion of a will is something that's kind of pretty recent with St. Augustine. Not to say that, you know, human beings developed wills in the 4th century uh, AD, but to say that the understanding of our own interior life comes to a certain place of refinement around the time of St. Augustine. Previously, you don't really have people like Socrates or Plato or Aristotle talking too terribly much about something called the will. They have a sense that we have appetites, but they're mostly talking about sense appetites, like you see good food and you salivate, things like that. And they'll have a sense how those appetites can resonate through our thought world. But it's very rare that you hear a philosopher describe separate ways of kind of intellectual engagement with reality, one of them intellectual and one of them volitional. Again, pardon the somewhat technical language, but the basic idea here is that it's a widely held teaching among Christians that we have a mind and a heart, both of which are immaterial both of which kind of transcend our bodies in a certain sense, and that the heart, the will, um, can be turned away from what is in fact good, that we can choose against it, or we can choose lower goods to the exclusion of higher goods. And St. Augustine really brings that home with a certain force and efficacy, and in part, I think it's because of his experience, right? It's, it's in part because of his unwillingness to convert, because he experienced his own stubbornness, he experienced his own opposition so acutely, so keenly, that he realizes that he needed to be yeah, he kind of needed to be broken in order to appreciate the gift of God, which was on offer. We're going to hear this beautiful prayer in book 10, which we've already heard set to music, perhaps, and, you know, like on a Matt Maher album or whatever it is. But, you know, you called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness. And there's different words to describe that phenomenon. But like there's a kind of violence, as it were, to the interposition of grace because our hearts can be so wayward and they can be so utterly stubborn. Um, so when he talks here about the freedom of our wills, it's not just a mere matter of knowing enough because ignorance is the only way to turn away from God. We can choose to turn away from God, and that's a scary prospect, but that means that we can also choose to turn to God, and then we become beggars for the divine mercy, which is which is better still. And the, the whole tract of his confessions, our sort of journey from of a transformation of that journey or a journey of transformation in that understanding of, yeah, we can choose against, um, but we can also choose for, and we can choose God. And there's, yeah, choosing against is a horrifying reality and choosing for is, yeah, a glorious one. And we're, we're moving there with St. Augustine. So, yeah, he dives into some 
Neoplatonism here and takes us with us, jumps into the deep end, but it's it's a cool way to start thinking about the world and thinking about God and um, yeah, challenging our minds to understand a bit of the foundation that informs Augustine's thought now and will inform theological thought and the church's thought for, for centuries to follow. So we're getting a little bit of it all here, which is, which is great. Um, we'll continue with it on our next episode tomorrow as we continue to forge through book seven here. But in the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Thank you.